Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with our uh, roundup of what's gone on in politics in the last week or so, as we do every Friday in the program. And uh, to that end, pleased to welcome back to the program, John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer. John, I hope you're doing well these days. Thanks for being with us today. Doing great, Bill. Nice to be with you. Let me, right off the top, ask about what's going on with municipal government. We had some speculation uh, earlier in this week, of course, when the NDP, who are the, still the official opposition to the Ontario legislature, of course, after the last election, but not with Andrea Horvath as leader, Peter Tabbins as the interim leader, uh, but he named his shadow cabinet for all intents and purposes, and Andrea Horvath was in there. Uh, for She's in charge of integrity. I can't remember the exact title. I haven't got it in front of me, but... That led to speculation that, wait a second, we thought she was running for mayor. Why would she accept a post like that? Is it is it much ado about nothing? Does she still have an escape clause there? What, what do you, What's your read on what you saw? I, I think it's the latter. I think it's an escape clause. Uh, it is a bit unusual, though, for... Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember whether Kathleen Wynne, even though they were diminished to seven or eight seats, I'm trying to remember whether she actually took on a formal critic role and in her case, of course, she, her intention was to remain uh, in the legislature, even though she wasn't leader. Yeah. It, it, it seems to me that it does send out a bit of a mixed message, that it, it kind of suggests she's settling into the, to the caucus duties. But um, let's face it, a, a critical role, especially uh, the one she had, which is integrity, and I forget what the other part of it was, but there's obviously no ministry with that name. So it's not like she's paired off with uh, health or education or one one of the real ministries. It's uh, it sounds like kind of a free floating sort of an assignment. So I suppose that that does leave open the opportunity that uh, if she ends up running in Hamilton, uh, you know, uh, the transition is not going to be very difficult. But let's face it. Uh, integrity and transparency, uh, and I understand you, you know, because it's not often you see those two words affiliated with politics. But anyway, uh, but but that just seems to be, as you say, kind of a, a made-up thing, and, and who knows what's going to happen? Could it be? Exactly. I got because we got a lot of respect. I got a lot of response after our conversation about this uh, earlier in the week. Uh, some are suggesting that you know what, maybe she's dipped her toe in the water and found out that uh, it's going to cost a lot of money, and it's pretty hard to raise money these days for politicians, especially not from a party standpoint, but even from an individual standpoint. Well, I, I heard your uh, your conversation with Vito Scro yesterday, yeah. and and I think he's he's got it right. Uh, it's getting uh, more and more difficult to get people engaged in uh, actual involvement in politics. Uh, we saw the, uh, the the terrible turnout in the last uh, provincial election, and and when you talk about trying to get people engaged, there's nothing more engaging than than writing a check. And uh, you know, if engagement is off at the voter level, it's probably equally off at the donation level. And running for mayor in Hamilton uh, is an expensive proposition, unless you're an incumbent. Uh, you know, uh, like. Uh, Fred Eisenberger was in the last election. He could, he could get away with a less expensive campaign, but when it's a wide open field the way it is now, uh, you need to be able to reach the voters, and that essentially translates into money. And I you know I don't know who the donors are. Uh, uh, you know you you wouldn't expect someone who was uh, recently an NDP leader to be getting any support from the development community. Uh, they're um, you know. Uh, they they definitely don't go in that direction normally. 
if you're looking at it from an LRT lens, uh, Keenan Loomis has uh, championed the LRT for half a decade now. So, you know, uh, the people that are wanting to see that come to fruition are going to park their vote there, I would think. So, uh, yeah, where, where is the money? Uh, the, you know, maybe $300,000 possibly that it would take uh, to, to mount a campaign. Well, the other thing from a pro- political standpoint, forget about the financials for a second, although though it doesn't mean it's it's not important because it certainly is. If, if a, a, somebody like an Andrew Horvath, who's a former leader of the provincial party, wanted to jump in there, how does she separate herself? In other words, what's she bringing to the table that the candidates who are already registered don't already have covered? And you know, you've got to be something different. You can't just work on name recognition and say, I want the job. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, she, she's obviously someone who is very familiar to Hamiltonians. She, she served uh, on council before she became the party leader. She's had no trouble getting elected in her, in her own riding in, in central Hamilton, lower Hamilton. I guess the question is, how well is she known in that uh, that horseshoe of Hamilton that, that tends to get ignored. Uh, this city is so obsessed with downtown issues that uh, we forget that there's this great big horseshoe of uh, four or five po- uh, provincial and federal ridings and probably 10 of the 15 wards uh, are not that part of Hamilton where where she has the most familiarity. So yeah, it's um, it's a it's a difficult uh, task to sort of jump in and say, well, you you know me, uh, you know me well, but um, I, I'm not sure what I have to, you know, what what is she going to say that we haven't heard already? I guess would be the real question. I, I mean, it's speculative at this stage, but I just find it interesting uh, because that seemed to be the way things were going, and and I think that speculation ramped up after uh, Fred Eisenberger announced he wasn't going to run. Uh, we thought there was a void there, but uh, maybe not. Just on, one last thing on municipal politics, John, because I want to talk about uh, your reaction to a couple of surveys done federally. Uh, are you surprised? I mean, we're still a couple of months away from the, the municipal elections here. I was just uh, perusing the the city of Hamilton webpage earlier this morning. A lot of people have registered to run in this election. And I know there are some incumbents who aren't running, so there are going to be some vacancies. We get that. But uh, I don't know that I've seen this many people jumping in here. Uh, uh, do you read anything into that? Is it, is it discontent? Is it just an opportunity for them to, to get into that horseshoe there at City Hall? What's, what's, what do you read into that? Well, I, I think it's still, uh, the, there are a large number of people who have registered, but I, I still think if you, if you look at the four, um, you know, the four wards where there is change, uh, where, where the incumbent is not running, that's where the bulk of those new faces are. There, you know, there's a couple of people taking a look at Ward 14 and uh, wondering whether whether uh, Terry Whitehead is going to run again. Um, I, I think there's, you know, there's no question there's a group of people in town that are that are really focused on anybody but the incumbents. And and if you look at who's who's registering, a lot of them are people that have been active with that group. So it, it doesn't necessarily point to a, an overwhelming groundswell across the city. It's some of the activists who have been in the, you know, supporting groups like I elect and others are also, or, you know, um, some of the anti-police groups, um, you know, they're, they're registering. So I, I don't, I don't know that it, 
there's certainly a lot of new names popping up on these nomination lists, but I'm not sure that it necessarily represents any kind of a movement. Interesting to see how that's going to develop over the next little while. Speaking of elections, uh, let's talk federally a second. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the uh, marketing poll that was done by for uh, Post Media from, from the Leger folks. Uh, the headline is, is rather disturbing, I guess, if you're a liberal supporter. Most Canadians disapprove of Justin Trudeau's performance as prime minister and feel that he is a divisive leader, with almost as many hoping he resigns before the next election, according to this new survey that was done for the folks at uh, Leger Marketing. Uh, not the sort of stuff you want to read when you're in a minority government and an election could happen at any time. You know, uh, this is a devastating poll, Bill, uh, in many ways. I mean, when you're talking, uh, you know, we talk about Joe Biden uh, being in trouble when he's in the high 30s. I mean, we're, we're talking Justin Trudeau here. We, he's got 55% either strongly disapprove or somewhat disapprove. Only 7% strongly approve. I mean, his numbers are as bad or worse than Biden. Um, this is uh, this is a, a bad poll, not only for the liberals, but I think it's a bad poll for Canada, because if there's that much discontent with the government in power, voters may vote um, for uh, somebody like uh, Pierre Polyev, um, out of just out of sheer frustration, even though he's uh, you know I think he scares a certain amount of the moderates in in uh, Canada. This is a, this is a really bad poll for the country, I think, because it it once again shows that there's simply no place for uh, politically in the political spectrum. There's no place for what you might call a moderate centrist voter. Um, it's, uh, it's there, there's just no um, parking spot for that point of view anymore. Well, I mean, you know, he, Trudeau's won three elections. Of course, one with the, the 2015, the big majority government, and two minorities since then. Uh, and and some pundits, as as we've talked about, John, have still suggested, look, he dodged the bullet in those last two where he won, um, you know, simply because the, the conservatives uh, had a lackluster leader and didn't quite know what their, their message was, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't hang your hat on that every election. At some point, you've got to have something going for you. And uh, I... I I'm not suggesting there's going to be an election anytime soon. I saw one uh, speculative uh, piece uh, in the Ottawa Citizen, I think, that said that Trudeau may pull the plug and call an election this fall. I don't think that's going to happen. But there's no succession plan here. Uh, we assume Christia Freeland would run, run for the leadership, but there'll probably be others. But he's not stepping down and showing no indication that he is. And uh, it's, it's, as you say, it's very troubling for him and for the, the the country as well. I mean, you know, we've just come through two and a half years of hell with COVID and all of the the, uh, the you know the collateral damage that's resulted from that. And uh, we're not very positive about things in this country right now, and that's disturbing. No, and then then you get uh, the airport chaos. Uh, you know, you've got a, a, a nation that, that desperately wants to travel after two years of lockdown. Uh, the system can't handle it. Uh, it's being blamed on the government mainly because of their COVID airport testing restrictions and, uh, you know, all that stuff. Um, I guess the other thing that, that I think is playing a role here, at least in, in my mind, this coalition that he formed with uh, Jagmeet Singh, it may have saved his bacon as far as a parliamentary working majority goes, but I think it's further alienated voters. And I think this poll uh, from uh, the National Post I think it's showing uh, how the public has reacted to that 
whole piece of, of uh, an NDP liberal alliance. It's really uh, created a, a situation where people just feel that uh, they're disenfranchised. And the irony in that poll, by the way, is that Trudeau is not popular with the NDP and Greens. So it would, it would tell Jagmeet Singh that maybe he made a mistake as well. So it's just a bad news poll that I think it shows that there's just a lot of churn and disconnect in the country. And when that happens, I think you do sometimes run the risk of getting an alternative that you wish you didn't have. And with the Conservative Party in you know, somewhat disarray, there you go. We could see a very nasty election in a couple of years. Well, there's a couple of elements to that. And does Jagmeet Singh start to have second thoughts, if he hasn't already, about this alliance and think maybe I'll pull my support and that throws us into an election? That's a possibility. But the other is something that I know you've written about for for many elections now is when voters are angry, uh, they tend to go to the polar opposite. Uh, And they did this certainly when they they didn't like the Bob Ray government in Ontario back in the mid-90s. And they went with Mike Harris and the common sense revolution, and we all know how that ended, uh, and there was a lot of voter remorse. Uh, I guess you could make the same basic argument about when they dumped Kathleen Wynne, too, and they went to uh, an unproven guy named Doug Ford that didn't know, uh, we didn't know much about him, and he didn't know much about provincial politics, but they just figured, what the hell's got to be better than what we've got? Uh, are we developing that attitude now? I think we are, Bill. Uh you know, you've got a combination of events. You, you, we haven't talked about it yet, but we we have also from the National Post this poll that shows that Poliev is, is now way out in front in terms of uh, conservative voters, how they feel. Uh, he's got a commanding lead over the others, like Jean Charest, only 14%, uh, and he's got 48%. So uh, if, it, if it ends up that the conservatives uh, um, take Pierre Poliev, we're uh, now in exactly the same situation as we were with those two elections you just mentioned. Uh, the conservative leader is somebody who people are a bit scared of, but they're so fed up with the government they have that they, they take the leap of faith. It worked, I think you would say it worked with Ford because he ended up being quite a different character than people thought he was going to be. I heard your comment this morning. Uh, probably didn't work as well with Harris, who really did go in and slash and burn and do pretty much what he said he was going to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it makes it more likely that a, a person that we might consider an extremist uh, on the conservative side could end up becoming uh, prime minister. Strange things going on these days. As always, John, thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend and uh, look forward to our conversations uh, going forward. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Air travel. It's been a concern. It's been a problem. We've all seen the pictures on TV over the last couple of weeks now about what's happening at Pearson. And not just at Pearson, but that seems to be uh, the uh, the ground zero, I guess, of, of a lot of what's going on. Uh, well, the folks at Global News uh, asked uh, Ipsos to do a poll for them to, to get the feel as to just what Canadians were feeling. Because even if you don't travel, uh, it, it has a, an impact. And, and there's a couple of elements here, too, including, you know, the fact that other people are watching what's going on. And the numbers from the poll, from the Ipsos poll here, uh, do tell a story. 70, 70, 70% of Canadians agree that the widespread delays at airports across the country are what they call a national embarrassment according to this poll, 
60% of the people saying that they are avoiding travel uh, until the situation improves. Uh, and a number of people are still saying, yeah, but that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. So that's the, that's the concern that's going on. And we've all seen what's happening. Uh, and they blame the airports. They blame the federal government. They blame everybody. I mean, when you're angry, you start looking for you know people to point at and say, hey, do something about this. Well, the federal government has, uh, has said that they do want to help and they're going to initiate some programs. Uh, but then came word yesterday of mandatory random COVID testing is going to be uh, resuming again at uh, a number of airports. And some people are kind of scratching their heads and saying, isn't that one of the causes of what's going on here? To try to get some clarity on this, we're pleased to uh, welcome back to the program Karina Gold. Uh, Karina, of course, is the MP for Burlington, also the Minister of Families, Children, and Social Development. Uh, Minister, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the announcement yesterday about the return of mandatory COVID testing uh, at airports. And I believe Pearson's going to be one of them. Uh, as I mentioned, it's got a lot of folks scratching their heads and saying, wait a second, that was causing the holdups. That's what's bothering people. You just announced a few weeks ago that you were going to uh, s- suspend that. Why are you bringing it back? Why is the government deciding to bring this this program back? Sure. Well, I think the problem at airports are multiple. Um, I mean, part of it is that uh, travel has increased at a very high rate um, and airlines have maybe booked more um, flights than they have capacity to manage at the airlines. A lot of people were let go, like baggage handlers, etc. But when it comes to the mandatory um, or random checks, we're also experiencing another wave of COVID-19. Um, you know, the as Ontario Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, Dr. Moore has said, we're in a seventh wave. We've seen a huge uptick um, in the number of cases locally. And so we always said that this would be dependent on the public health situation. And so I think, you know, based on advice from the Public Health Agency of Canada, we also need to do what we can to protect people from COVID-19. So with that in mind, and we should say that this is random, not everybody has to be tested, but there will be people selected. And uh, it's not going to be done on site, uh, which is an interesting twist in this. Yeah, so I I still need to get a bit more details on that as well. But I mean, the idea is really to make sure that this doesn't hamper um, activities at at the airport because we do recognize that there's already a challenging situation. Although the government has hired hundreds of more um, CATSA employees and um you know the situation at security i i travel quite frequently um is is much better than it was uh, a couple of months ago but that being said busy times are still very um challenging but people can check the wait times at security on cats's website but we are trying to minimize um the impact that it has at the airport yeah, I was going to mention, I, I have not, I've, I've gone to pick people up at the airport and waited an awfully long time for them to get baggage, etc. But uh, you do a lot more traveling than I do. And uh, have you noticed a, a perceptible improvement in what's happened over the last couple of weeks? Certainly, I have um, when it comes to uh, wait times at security. I think it's um, much more efficient than it was, and um, I've noticed that. I try not to check baggage when I travel because um, I see the challenges there. I know that's not possible for everyone, depending on the length of time um, they are traveling. But I think where the challenges are are certainly with regards to baggage handling, um, 
but uh, you know, it there has been an improvement, but there's also been a lot more flight cancellations um, recently as well, which has you know other impacts on people who were trying to travel and aren't able to. So it's a pre- I think it's a pretty challenging situation, but I know the federal government, the airlines, and the airports are all working together to try and make this more manageable and to improve the experience for travelers. Yeah, just. Uh... To clarify what we were just talking about, about the uh, the random testing, passengers selected for random testing at one of the four major airports, including Pearson, of course, who have connecting flights to other cities in Canada will not have to leave the airport for a test part of their transfer. Uh, they can get tested at a participating location at their final destination. So it's not as if it has to be done on that spot. They're just looking for a test here. Uh, and other people, I guess, uh, they're, they're going to be off-site, but I, I don't know if they're going to take them by bus or what they're going to do. Uh, but it's only going to be on a random basis, so we don't even know how that's uh, going to work out. Uh, we're hearing, and I've, from the information that I've received this morning, and, and I'm just looking at some of the stuff on social media, uh, mixed reaction to this. I mean, you know, some people are going to say, well, it's only going to make the inconvenience worse. But your point, Minister, I think is well taken. We're seeing an uptick in numbers. And Dr. Moore here in Ontario and others have said, you know, we, we need to be watching this and careful of this. We don't want to let, let this thing get out of hand like we did before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really important. I mean, we're seeing a big rise um, in COVID cases in Ontario and right across the country and in other countries as well. Um, so I think it's important for us to be vigilant. You know, we always talked about the fact that, um, you know, these measures could be lifted when we saw a decrease in cases and when we saw, you know, the situation um, improving. But now that we're seeing an increase, um, we do think it's important. And it's also important to understand where these cases are coming from. I mean, most of it is community spread that's happening right now. But, um, you know, we also know that um, there are new variants that can arise both domestically and internationally. And so some of this random testing is also about information gathering. I know at Pearson, um, there's testing available offsite, uh, not far from the, not inside the airport terminal itself, but at the parking garage. Um, so I'm, I'm not 100% sure how it's going to work out, but really, you know, there is an attempt to minimize the impact um, on travelers so that they can get through security, get through customs, um, and get on their way without much delay. The, 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 there's a lot of heat here going on, and I mentioned just before you joined us that, uh, you know, the the global poll, the Ipsos poll that was done for Global News uh, said that you know, about 70% of the people say this is an embarrassment, uh, and they, they blame not just the government. I mean, I think Canadian travelers are maybe a little more informed than some folks south of the border, and they understand that uh, the airlines have a role to play here. The airport itself has a role to play in situations like this. Uh, your uh, cabinet colleague, though, uh, Minister Al Gabra, has been taking an awful lot of heat on this. Is there a role for the federal government to play here to try to alleviate some of this? Uh, some of these people are federal employees. We get that. But they say that doesn't seem to be where the hassle is. But you've seen the pictures. Uh, at 4 o'clock this morning, somebody tweeted something right now. The Pearson Airport was jammed to the gills, but people thought they were going to get there early, and the thing was not moving. And uh, I'm sure you've seen the stories about some people are saying, look, and I'm waiting in line longer than my flight would be. You know, it's an hour and a flight to Boston, and I'm waiting two and a half hours to get on that one-hour flight. Uh, there's an awful lot of frustration there. I know you've been in contact, uh, your government's been in contact uh, with uh, the airports themselves. Uh, is, is there a way to relieve some of this pressure? It's, the short term sounds like, okay, let's just hire a bunch more people, but you can't do that overnight. 
Well, I think that's part of the challenge is that, you know, obviously during the pandemic or the height of the pandemic, when we were, you know, travel restrictions were in place and lockdowns were uh, in place, a lot of people who worked at the airports were let go uh, just because there were there just weren't the travel volumes. And like anything, it's um, you know, it's kind of faster to shut down and it's a lot harder and longer to get started again. Um, the forecast for return to travel back in February were that, you know, it was going to take a couple of years to get back to pre-pandemic levels. Although what we've seen in reality is that we're pretty much back at 19, 2019 levels already. Um, there, you know, there is a goal for the federal government to play, and we did hire 1,200 new uh, CAPS people across the country to make sure that lines of security were fast. We're in the process of doing that with CBSA for customs. Um, but I think airports are struggling to rehire baggage handlers and uh, gate agents and all of the people needed for uh, to you know make the airport experience a smooth one. Um, you know we've seen similar situations in the United States where you know on a daily basis they're ca- canceling hundreds, sometimes thousands of flights a weekend because they don't have the people. And I'm sure you saw the news out of London and Heathrow where Heathrow said, no, we're limiting the number of people to 100,000 travelers a day. We do not have capacity to do more than that. Um, So this is something that, you know, is happening right around the world. It's making travel, um, you know, less pleasant than it was. Um, So I certainly get that and hear the frustrations that people are experiencing. Um, But I think there is a role for the federal government in terms of making sure the elements that we're responsible for um, are, are operating smoothly. And I know Minister Algabra is working hard on that with CATSA. And I know Minister Mendicino is doing the same with CBSA. And then, of course, you know, talking with the airports and the airlines uh, to make sure that, you know, they are, um, you know, not... Uh, overbooking themselves, making sure that they have the capacity for the flights that they have. Um, but I, I know I've certainly heard from constituents and people across the country who have been frustrated with their experience, um, and particularly those for whom they had travel booked and their flight was cancelled. Um, so I think this is this is challenging for sure, um, and we're working really hard to get it back to a better place. One of the ways I guess the government can and, and, and is t- attempting to do something about this uh, is uh, with passports. And, and we've all seen those pictures as well. People lined up down the block and outside and uh, ridiculous long lineups. Uh, federal government responsibility either to get a passport or get one renewed in situations like this. Uh, and, and again, I, I, your point's well taken that you mentioned a few minutes ago, Minister, that I don't know anybody anticipated there was going to be such an uptake on, on travel as soon as uh, some of the restrictions were lifted. Uh, but the government got caught short there again with staffing. Uh, and what are, what's the government doing to try to alleviate that process? I mean, you know, waiting is waiting. But I mean, when you're hours and hours and hours standing there just mm-hmm. to get a passport, which is essential before you even get to the airport, uh, what role can the government do to try to alleviate that pressure? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, as you mentioned, we we did anticipate that there was going to be an uptick in demand. Uh, we did not accurately forecast it um, because it was much higher than we expected. And we saw hundreds of thousands of people basically apply through the mail at the same time, March, April, May, which created a huge backlog um, in the system. So we've done a couple of things. The first is we've started hiring hundreds of pass- new passport officers. We've reallocated resources internally um, within the government of Canada to help get through that backlog. Um, and we've streamlined um, the process internally for uh, processing passports to make it more efficient. 
The other thing that we've done is um, instituted a new triage system at busy passport sites. So the Hamilton Mountain site is a very busy site. Um, it wasn't a particularly busy site. And then because of its proximity to the GTA, um, people kind of started seeing that the lineups were shorter there and they moved there. And that created, um, you know, some big pressure uh, at the Hamilton Mountain site and other nearby sites as well in St. Catharines and Kitchener. Um, so there's a team of managers in place starting at 7 a.m., triaging people in line, uh, making sure that those that have urgent travel are being seen quickly. Um, those whose travel is maybe uh, 48 hours or more um, out, they're getting um, a ticket to come back with an appointment so they don't have to do that lineup. Um, and then for people who are just looking for a status update or who are looking, um, you know, asking for information or don't have urgent travel and maybe their passport hasn't even expired yet, they're being redirected to a nearby Service Canada Centre uh, to make sure that they get the information that they need. Um, if you're not traveling urgently, uh, do not send your passport by mail. If you can avoid it, go to a nearby Service Canada Centre. All of their frontline uh, officers are trained to passport intake. You then don't have to send off your original documents. They just verify them and then you keep them. Um, but yeah, we are working around the clock to address this situation. We've seen improvements um, since the height of the crisis about three weeks ago, uh, but we have to continue to work really hard to tackle this backlog and get back to more normal space. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mixed messaging about numbers, and I know that you can twist numbers this way, that way to try to substantiate your point of view or stories. Uh, but when it comes to the economy, there's a lot of concern here, of course. I mean, you know, we just had another rise in the Bank of Canada rate. Uh, talked about the impact that's going to have on mortgages. But what about the economy every day and what's happening here? I mean, we kind of had the feeling, I, I, I sensed anyway, that, you know, once the restrictions for the pandemic were lifted and people had all this money that they weren't able to spend because of lockdowns, that uh, they were going to go out, they were going to spend it, and uh, we we're all going to live happily ever after, so to speak. Maybe a little naive, but I mean, that's what a lot of people were predicting. I don't know that anybody anticipated uh, inflation close to 8%. Uh, and now they're starting to talk about uh, perhaps going into another recession because of what's going on. But the numbers, on the other hand, on the other side of the ledger, employment numbers uh, start to look pretty good here, uh, specifically. So why the talk about inflation? Let's try to get some clarity on this with our next guest, Mark Agnew is the Vice President of Policy for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to try to uh, add some clarity to this. Mark, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could be with us today. Always a pleasure to be here with you, Bill. <laughs> Let's talk about, the, and maybe you can decipher some of this for some confused listeners. Uh, Canadian jobs market is setting records, so why are people talking about a recession? Is, is it inevitable, as some people seem to suggest, that we're heading down that road towards a recession? Well, I don't know if it is inevitable, but certainly, um, you know, the, the the economists who crunch the numbers and, you know, put out the forecasts, um, you know, the, the direction of travel seems to unfortunately be heading down that way. And, you know, to your earlier point about the numbers, um, it, in some ways, it feels like we're kind of in the, the best of times, but the worst of times um, to, you know, to take from a, a piece of literature, because we do have such record unemployment. Um, but at the same time, we also have, um, sorry, record low unemployment, but then record high, you know, inflation for our generation. I mean, we haven't seen um, this in, in, in decades. And so when we look at this and, you know, where is it all heading? Um, you know, certainly the, the sugar high that we've been on in some ways feels like it's going to, uh, you know, come out from under us in the not so distant future. 
And is there one barometer over another that we can look to? I mean, the employment numbers are certainly wonderful. Uh, you know, people are actually adding jobs. It's not just, I know, I know that, you know, we've heard, and you and I have talked about this in the past, uh, that a lot of employers even can't even find enough people to fill some of the openings that are there, which tells me that, uh, you know, to go back to the old, you know, supply and demand sliding scale, uh, demand is there. Uh, you know, certainly we as consumers are, are looking for things right now. Uh, there are still some some problems, of course, on the supply side of things, but if they're adding jobs, that kind of tells me that that maybe that's starting to get better too, is it? Yeah, I think the um, you know when when you look at the the current job market situation, I mean, one of the questions that uh, many of our members across the country have been asking, and it, you know, we uh, as well at uh, the chamber have been asking ourselves is where have the people gone? Um, and I think what you're also seeing perhaps too is you know people that have um, you know left the workforce uh, you know because of the pandemic. Um, you know, we're also you know in that kind of baby boomer re- retirement um, you know phase as well too, where you know folks that had um, you know been through the pandemic experience or just through, you know, by virtue of how old they are um, exiting the workforce. And we haven't had that, you know, replacement rate either through, you know, natural, um, you know, births or through immigration that's enabled us to uh, to keep pace. Um, I mean, I think, though, when you look out a little further ahead, if we are going to go into a recessionary period and you're already seeing, you know, some of this with some major companies that are slowing down uh, hiring, I think you'll probably start seeing that in other sectors uh, of the economy. The other thing, too, that is really um, accentuating the the labor shortage challenges that for a number of businesses that were shut down over the course of the pandemic, people have left those sectors altogether, particularly in the travel, hospitality, and tourism industries. And so as much as, you know, labor shortages are going across the board, those sort of service-oriented sectors are particularly seeing challenges with uh, people that, again, have left to go find other work to help uh, pay the bills um, over the course of the pandemic. Uh, yeah, you could probably include the baggage uh, sorting industry too, <laughs> judging on what's happened to the airport. But your, but your point's well taken, though. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of us might have had the impression, oh, what a, a, a tragedy! These guys all got laid off. Well, when the economy picks up, those guys will get their jobs back. Well, they've left. They they're doing something else now, so they don't want those jobs again. Uh, which means you got to find people. That means you got to train people. So there's there's going to be some lag time here, isn't there, Mark? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, to use the, the travel example, just while we're on that theme, I was connecting through uh, Pearson Airport on my way back to Ottawa yesterday. And um, as I was going through the security line, there was these, um, you know, we, we, we call them CATSA scanners. and But, you know, the security yeah. folks is uh, otherwise known to, to the average person. Um, you know, there's probably about a half dozen or so of them, you know, being trained. And, you know, because they're being trained, they're not able to process things as efficiently as someone who's experienced. And so these companies and organizations, they experience a lot of growing pains in the process of training staff. And even if you hire someone today, they're not gonna be working productively for you for perhaps still a couple of months while they get their feet under the table. So there's that, and, and, and as you say, that's just one instance at the airport. Uh, travel and, and tourism industry, exactly the same thing. You know, people have left, you've gotta find people, you've gotta train them, that's gonna take some time. And money, I guess, too, doesn't it, to, to, to have this thing going on. What about the old adage, though, Mark, if, if you keep talking about it and keep wishing it and thinking it, it could happen. In other words, are we, are we victims of our own, you know, doomy, gloomy attitude right now to say, well, recession is, is coming? Um, if, if we do that and, and we start thinking along those lines that, well, maybe I shouldn't spend uh, that big purchase or maybe I better start hoarding my money again, uh, that becomes a reality, doesn't it? Yeah, I think certainly for um, a certain like a, a certain sector of the uh, a certain segment, sorry, of the economy, that is absolutely true. If you kind of talk about it enough, and people hear about it happening, and they're going to they're going to pull back purchasing, as you said, and that's going to continue the the cycle. But 
I think though some people tend to um, over-index and, and put too much uh, emphasis on that point. Um, when you look at what's happening, for example, with interest rates, I mean, the central bank uh, has said that we need to raise interest rates in order to, you know, get a tamp down on inflation. Um, if you're raising interest rates, that makes borrowing more expensive, and that's going to slow down economic activity, which is one of the things that can help, you know, cause a recession. So, um, yes, the psychology matters, but you know, don't underestimate some of those other very real, quantifiable, um, you know, economic challenges. Uh, that you're that you're seeing in the economy that again could lead to uh, a recession here is is it naive to suggest mark that in the passage of time that a lot of these concerns for instance about supply chains are going to work themselves out that, that we don't necessarily need stimulus or or new policies that it's just a matter of getting people back to work making things and and getting those things to where they need to be uh in the manufacturing sector whatever the case might be yeah, certainly when we look at, um, you know, the various government policy, you know, tools and what is it that we've been asking the government to do to, you know, help unjam the supply chains, um, there's a lot of things that can be done that don't actually involve uh, spending money. Some of those things do involve spending money. I mean, if you want to have a, a new port infrastructure built or, you know, roads or bridges that, that will involve um will involve cash. But there's things that can be done, such as, you know, breaking down interprovincial trade barriers, um, helping with the recognition of foreign credentials, um, you know, streamlining our regulatory system. I mean, these are all things that companies feel that the pinch of that the government can fix without spending a dollar. I, I, I saw this stat, I'm sure you have too, that uh, Google trends right now show that uh, uh, searches for the word recession have dramatically risen in Canada, uh, which kind of tells us that maybe maybe we are getting a little bit worried and hearing about th these these predictions and, and all of a sudden, you know, that's, that's going to have an impact on what we do and how we spend our money or if we don't spend our money. I mean, you know, we were just talking earlier on the program, well, you just flew yesterday, so you'd know about this firsthand too, about what's going on at the airports. In the uh, Ipsos poll that was done for Global News, 40% uh, of the people that they polled there said, you know what, we're not going to airports. We're not going to travel this year because of this. Uh, that's, that's, that's not what we want to hear. You want people out there spending money. You want money into the system, don't you? Yeah, and certainly, um, you know, it's unfortunate that we're at a state where people are now actively avoiding airports um, as a means of, you know, spending their summer vacation plans. I mean, yes, uh, you know, they, there's more lineups and yes, there's more delays. You can't dispute that. But, um, you know, people just want to get out, I mean, and in, in not be stuck in their basements after two years of, of doing this. So it's unfortunate that, you know, people are, you know, kind of turning down those opportunities to, to go away and, you know, enjoy what would be a kind of a, you know, a very classic summer vacation. To your point, though, about, you know, expectations and are we going to kind of whip ourselves into a frenzy? Um, in some ways, this is kind of, you know, how the central bank thinks about inflation and, you know, when the Bank of Canada's, you know, going out and raising interest, interest rates. Um, yes, a large part of it is you raise the interest rates to, you know, slow down the activity or the, the, the how hot is the economy that causes the inflation. But it's also about managing inflation expectations. And so, if the Bank of Canada is raising interest rates and people perceive that they're serious about tackling inflation, then maybe stores aren't going to be raising their, raising their prices as much. And that's kind of is what you know inflation means in the real economy, where people see a sticker price on the store shelf that they paid more for today than they did yesterday. And, and that's, I guess, one of the things that's concerning an awful lot of us is how long is this going to last? You know, there's, there's, there's the shock of raising it, as you say, one percentage point uh, that what the Bank of Canada did. But I, I guess if there was a, a, a realization or maybe an expectation that, look, this is short term, it's only going to be for a little while. 
uh, and then things are going to go back. Because, I mean, we can react too far the other side too, can't we? Uh, you know, retail stores can say, okay, we got to jack our prices up because, you know, people aren't going to be spending money. So I got to make more off the product that I'm going to be buying in the next little while. That, that can be one thing. And the other thing is, is you know, we as consumers may we'll go to our employers and say, look at if rates are going to go up like this, I need more money. Um, and, and that's only going to make inflation worse, isn't it? Yeah. And if you're going out as an employer and you're saying, okay, well, you know, my employees need an 8%, um, you know, pay increase, you're then going to pass that cost down to your consumers and then sort of the, the inflationary, uh, you know, cycle continues. And again, this is where the, the psychology piece of the Bank of Canada raising interest rates come in, because if there's a perception that the bank is serious about tackling inflation, then people maybe aren't going to be passing on that 8% increase to the sticker uh, on the store shelf that, that people are, are, are paying. Because I think there, there's, there's sometimes a risk that we get a little too academic about inflation. It can seem abstract, but, um, you know, the, the way in which it manifests itself is when people are going out to the gas pump, when people are going out to the grocery store. So inflation is something that is, you know, affecting everyone, um, you know, in the economy right now. And how long is going to go on for? I don't really have an answer, you know, to that, but certainly it's not going to be solved overnight. I mean, we're running, as you said, at the top of, you know, kind of 8% inflation, getting back down to that magical kind of 2% number that we had all thought was the acceptable, uh, you know, number that's not going to happen overnight. So, you know, this is probably going to go, you know, into next year and perhaps even the year after that. Well, that's one of the predictions I saw yesterday. We're talking 2024, and that's that's not necessarily the news an awful lot of people that wanted to hear in situations like that. But the other stat that I found interesting, though, Mark, and, and I'm sure you've heard this from your members, uh, wages are going up. And, and, and part of the reason for that, of course, is, as you say, people are trying to find, uh, you know, people to fill in some of the holes in their businesses, tourism industry, whatever the case might be. And, and maybe they have to offer incentives. So maybe the pays have gone up. But my understanding is the pay is only going up about, about 6% on average uh, in some situations. And, of course, inflation is almost at 8% right now. So it's not as if it's keeping up with inflation. But at this stage, you don't want to have get into a tug of war with, with uh, that, that dollar. You, you don't want to see people just say, well, the inflation rate is 8%. I want an 8% raise. That's, that's, that's not where we're going to – that's not going to get us anywhere, is it? No, and it's not sustainable for businesses to afford, um, you know, eight percent compounding year over year. Um, you know that that's going to eat into a business's, uh, you know, margins pretty quickly to the point that unless you again raise your sticker prices by that much, you're not going to be able to afford it um, as a, as a company. But kind of to your point, though, part of the reason why employers are feeling this pressure to keep up with those wage increase expectations is in the you know com- competition for talent uh, and getting employees to stick around. I mean, you know, I I've seen this as someone who you know manages people and i you know, hear this from our members all the time um just how hard it is and you know to getting getting folks to, to even follow up for interviews and people you know candidates who ghost uh you know employers um on interviews i mean it's it's, it's things that you know if you had told me you know three years ago this is what would be happening i would have looked at you looked at you funny but we're in a really weird labor market dynamic uh right now where those traditional sort of uh you know etiquettes and the way people conducted themselves have been completely upended just because there is so much demand for the workers at the moment. There's a sense of inevitability, I guess, with some people that say it's going to happen. And I, there's, a, there's an element of truth to that. I mean, we do work on economic cycles, and at some point in the future, there is going to be a, a downturn, maybe a recession. Uh, we've had them before. We survived them. Not a depression, but recessions. Uh, so that may happen faster than we wanted it to, but it's going to be there. But uh, what I'm also hearing, and I wanted to get the read of what you're hearing from your members too, Mark, 
is the anticipation is if it does happen, it's going to be what they call a soft landing. In other words, it's it's going to get bumpy for a little while, but we're, we're going to be okay. What, what is, what's your sense of that? Yeah, I mean, the soft landing, you know, language is something that, you know, I, I've likewise, likewise heard from, um, you, you know, a number of people that are in the, you know, the economic forecasting space, um, you know, the slightly less informal term term might be a short lived recession. But, you know, I think when people use language like, you know, soft landings and, and short lived recessions, um, in some ways, it kind of papers over and, you know, minimizes the real human impact uh, of a recession, because, in a recessionary period, you know, you've had two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. And so, you know, there are going to be people who lose jobs, there will be businesses that, you know, go under. And so as much as things might be short lived, there will be people that are going to feel, you know, the impact of it. And those are, you know, real people that have, you know, real families and, you know, real mortgages and, you know, real debts that have to be, you know, paid off. So, um, you know, I think there's a risk again that we kind of minimize the, um, the repercussions to the economy from it. Well, and that's the thing that I think a lot of people are concerned about when these economists say, that, you, know, you know, what the Bank of Canada is trying to do is slow down spending, which means that's, that's going to slow down production. And when production slows down, people are going to lose their jobs, and as you say, or get laid off, whatever the case might be. But a loss of job and a loss of salary is going to be problematic because they've just already said, well, look at my mortgage. It may be, may be going up. Other things are going up like this, too. And I guess the, the balancing act here is how do you manage that? Uh, how do you make sure that those people are going to be okay? It's it's one thing to say the economy is going to have a, a, a soft landing, but individuals not necessarily going to have a soft landing. I mean, you know, that's that's when you get into you know, does the forty five or fifty year old that just got laid off because of this uh, try to find another job? Do they try to ride it out? It's it's a pretty difficult situation. Yeah, and especially too when we've come out of period the last two years where there has been, um, to, to say the least, there's been a whole whack of government spending on uh, various support programs to keep the economy going. Um, you know, since March uh, 2020, and yes, a lot of those have, have wound down. But you know, the the debt that is going to have to be paid off by you know my kids and you know my grandkids uh, has grown quite a lot over the last two years. And so, um, you know, the the typical playbook of you know what can the government do to help stimulate the economy to get us through to the other side? I mean, I, I suppose that, you know, there's probably going to be calls to go down that direction again, but we're just going to be compounding the the debt. And of course, a higher debt means more interest rate, uh, sorry, more um, interest to pay and to service that debt, which of course means less funding for, you know, schools and hospitals and roads and other services that uh, people need. Well, I, it's... I... Right now, predictions all seem to get tossed out the window right now because we just don't know, and there's so way too many variables. You know, we're talking about more new cases of, of the the Omicron virus now too, so we don't know how that's going to impact things too. So, uh, I, I I hate to use the old cliche, but it seems as if we, I, I know there are people in the business of predicting, but we pretty much as consumers have to kind of take this week by week, don't we, to see what's happening. Yeah, and especially too, then like when you look at things like um, supply chain disruptions that we had touched on a moment ago, um, you know, China is still pursuing a fairly aggressive uh, COVID lockdown, you know, measure or measure policy, um, and that's slowing down manufacturing and you know what, a, a key manufacturing hub where so many consumer products and other goods are are being made uh, that are used around the world, and so you know we can't you know, predict what China is going to be doing on COVID lockdowns and, you know, in the future either. So there, there's variables like that, that kind of get thrown at us. And, you know, we would have thought that 
two and two and a bit years into the pandemic, we wouldn't be still having these hard, you know, lockdowns. But you know, obviously, some countries are still pursuing that policy, and it has reverberating effects uh, on you know this side of uh, of the world. Sure does. Anyway, I, I'm glad you got home safely uh, from your flight yesterday. Uh, thanks for spending some time with us today, Mark. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot, Bill. Mm-hmm. Take care. Mark Agnew, who is the VP of Policy for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.